Welcome to Tall Poppy episode 27. Today I'm speaking with Angus Harvey from Future Crunch, which is a think tank that's driving intelligent optimism. With a focus on being evidence-based, Gus says optimism backed by science and research-based evidence is a superpower. And I tend to agree. At a TED Talk recently in Vancouver, Elon Musk said, I'm not a superhero, I just want to think about the future without being sad. Well, that's possible when you're in the orbit of Future Crunch. Our conversation talked about the quantified benefits of diversity in tech, as well as well any other business or organization, really, and the specific cohort that's imagining artificial intelligence as violent, megalomaniacal robots that will destroy humans. And perhaps what's missing from that narrative about our future with technology? The premise of our discussion and what Future Crunch is about is very much oriented toward technology in service of humanity and all of the good news that we don't get exposure to and the neuroscience behind that phenomena. We learned a lot about a whole bunch of really inspiring things that are happening in the startup space and how technology is being used for things like helping save endangered marine mammals, crowdsourcing agricultural solutions with farmers in Africa, machine learning for language translation. And we talked about the perilous impact of old school leadership and the number one adaptation that organizations can do to prepare for the future of work. I'll give you a hint. It's not restructuring. This is an episode that has been a long time coming, and I am thrilled to be able to finally share it with you. All right, I'm here with Gus Harvey from Future Crunch, and I'd like to welcome you to Tall Poppy. Thanks, Tatra. Nice to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about what Future Crunch is? We are a small Melbourne-based think tank. We help organisations understand what's on the frontiers of science and technology and what it means for human progress. And we describe ourselves as field guides for the new economy. Excellent. So what kind of organisations are you... So is it presentation-based? Is it consulting-based? Tell me a little bit more about what it looks like when you're working with somebody. Well, we started as... Future Country started as a conversation, actually, between myself and a, a good friend, Tane Hunter. I'm, an, a, I'm a political economist by training and by background, and Tane is a biologist and a science geek. And the two of us started talking about the future and technology and science and what it all meant. And after a little while, we decided that that was a conversation that we'd like, we wanted to be having in public. So we started doing talks, uh, started doing a bunch of writing online. And three years later, we now have a, a viable business. Mm. Uh, we do a lot of public speaking, mm-hmm. uh, and we also do consulting to large organizations that are looking to try and understand the big changes happening around us and aren't quite sure really where to start or, or how to sort of make sense of all of that. Mm. And one of the things that really underpins everything that we do is that we try and drive what we call intelligent optimism. Intelligent optimism. Mm. Oh, I like that. Mm. Or, or evidence-based optimism. You know, we have this idea that optimism is very nice, but optimism backed by really good evidence and statistics is a superpower. Right, yeah, I love that. Um, so I'm going to take a step back because I remember I first saw you at Future Assembly, not last year, but the previous year, and was pretty impressed with what you were presenting because, yeah, it was optimistic. And, oh, uh, yeah, let me let me take a step back even further, and we'll come back to this in a moment. I forgot to ask you about describing the environment that we're in because most of my interviews are remote, but I'm actually here with you in person. So can you describe where we are in the world and what, what's happening around us? Sure. So we're, we're at my home in Melbourne, in the, in the north. It's a really beautiful autumn day outside. We're sitting in our lounge and uh, I'm 
just finished uh, my first cup of coffee for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to the work that you're doing. So it sounds like you're helping prepare the business world for what's coming. And I also remember um, a couple of articles that you wrote with, you know, going back to this intelligent optimism. At the end of 2016, or was it the beginning of 2017, you you wrote an article basically with, you know, all the reasons why this previous year was was good, um, because so many people had been saying how crap it was. And then you did the same thing the following year, because again, we had another year where there was a lot of crazy stuff on the, on the political and global scene with Brexit and Trump and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, actually, here's like 99 things. Was it 99 or 100? <laughs> 99. 99 yeah. that, that were, you know, good about last year. And I really love that approach and helping people see, yeah, you know what, there's good stuff. And actually, I remember it was in maybe, I can't remember if it was the first one or the second one, but you talked about how our brains are oriented towards negativity. And I'd been kind of aware of that for while but I hadn't seen anyone write it about it in such a, a succinct and articulate way so I think that really helped me understand why we are you know we complain a lot we, we focus on what's wrong all that kind of stuff and then it actually takes a fair bit of discipline and intention to reorient our brains towards what's working what's going well and I love that you bring you know that evidence base so, so tell me a little bit about the the response to those articles too Maybe to answer that question, uh, I could sort of talk about where the kind of philosophy of Future Crunch comes from. Absolutely. And, and that philosophy really can probably be divided into three different parts. The first part is this part that we call evidence-based optimism. And what we're trying to do there is we're trying to show the incredible successes that humanity has achieved in the last 25 years on almost any measure that you care to use. Health, poverty, control of diseases, and we've talked about increased political and civil tolerance, uh, the decline of war and violence. We live in the most peaceful times ever. When you look at the statistical evidence for what's happened in the last 25 years, it's been an unprecedented era of flourishing for the human race. And that's a message that is not very common in our current political climate, especially. And it's also a message... climate that doesn't seem to see any advantage yeah. in, in you know, this kind of optimism. Well, the reason for that is that it's very difficult for the media to tell those stories because those stories are based in things like economics and statistics. They're not immediate. They're not sexy. They're not very sexy <laughs> stories. It's much yeah. easier to say, oh, well, there's been a plane crash where 53 people have died. It's a lot more difficult to say, we've saved the lives of 122 million children in the last 25 years thanks to better control of childhood diseases. Mm. That is an amazing story, but it's not a very sexy story. And this sort of brings us on to the the second part of our philosophy, I think, which is that we also try and dive into some of the new neuroscience, which is all, this stuff's new, this stuff's only been around for the last 10 or 15 years, which has a lot to do with, there's this idea that human beings are rational and that we take all the evidence into account and then we make decisions. What we're starting to see now in the last 10 or 15 years, especially through the work of um, people like uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, who won the 2002 Nobel Prize, and a bunch of other neuroscientists, is that we tend to focus on things that are scary or dangerous, and that we also tend to seek out information that confirms our pre-existing notions, mm-hmm. confirmation bias. Yeah. And so when you mix those two things together, you get this horrible negative feedback loop. And the media pushes bad news at us because they know we pay attention to that. That makes us feel negative about the world. We go out looking for more information that confirms that notion. And so the whole thing starts again. Mm. So we talk a lot about filter bubbles these days. But political view, viewpoints or, or fake news aren't the only filter bubbles. The other filter bubble is bad news. We tend to consume mostly bad news, and it's not an so accurate it, reflection of the world. Is it the way our brain works that is, creates the filter bubble? It's the way we've evolved. 
So we're designed by evolution to pay attention to something that's scary or dangerous because... Uh, this is a thing that I, I feel like it's that we haven't evolved because that stuff, for, for the most part, we don't have the saber-toothed tiger in our face anymore, but we're still responding as though we are. Yeah, but that's because your brain was designed in a time where it paid off to... Mm. Most of our ancestors were the people that paid the most attention to scary stuff. Mm -hmm. The people that didn't pay attention to scary stuff didn't get to pass on their genes. Ah, gotcha. Okay, so, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the way it works is that your brain is effectively like, and it pays more attention to pay attention to negative things. So the best way of describing this is that your brain is like Teflon for positive experiences, but like Velcro for negative ones. Wow, that's a brilliant description. Yeah. I love it. And what that means is that we kind of have these evolutionary hangovers that leave us ill-equipped to deal with the world as it currently is, as opposed to the world as it used to be. So can I ask you, what do you think it's going to take for us to be able to deal with it? Well, the first thing is that this conversation is starting to happen now. So science has now shown us that far from being these really rational, calculating people that we think we are, we actually are um, emotional people that make often very bad decisions. And we're now starting to see a whole body of new research coming out about confirmation bias, something called the kickback effect, which is when you get a piece of information that doesn't fit in with your worldview, instead of it changing your worldview, it tends to reinforce your existing one. Because you reject more. it. Yeah. yeah. Even mm. if that is a statistical piece of evidence that shows, for example, that climate change is happening yeah. or that you get a piece of information that says that diverse groups make better decisions. Your, yeah, you hire people that look like you. Your kickback effect <laughs> is to say, well, no, that, that doesn't match with my experience, so therefore I'm going to stick to my And I think that guns. that is a very subconscious process, isn't it? We're not aware that that's what we're doing. Yeah. The other thing to remember as well here is that those um, evolutionary adaptations, on the surface you'd sort of say, well, aren't those now things that those those evolutionary adaptations, they leave us, they leave us ill-equipped to deal with the world, so those things are, they're bad pieces of evolution, or, or they're, they're, the evolution is designed us the wrong way. But the other thing to remember here is that human beings are a social animal. So the reason that we have these things in place, things like confirmation bias, the kickback effect, is to actually allow us to stay together as groups. Okay. Because that allows us to form tribal identities. So you. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that means that you can identify with other groups of people that hold the same opinions and beliefs as you, despite new evidence coming in. And that allows you to stick together as a group more often, which is great for survival. Mm. So the stuff is not black and white. It's not like we've got all these bad habits that we, we are stuck with. It's more the case that we are a social animal and we are empathetic creatures, but designed by evolution to stick together in groups. That's why we have all these behaviours that, that tend to lead us to bad decisions. So this is the stuff that you're taking into consideration when you're working with organisations. Mm -hmm. So I'm keen to get on to some of the other topics. So let's hear about what the third principle is. Uh, so the third principle, again, based in science. So say so this is where we've come from. It's amazing. Look at what we've achieved. This is why we feel more negative about the world than the world really is. So we explain that. And then the last part of that equation is to really say, how do we move forward into the future with an opportunity-based mindset, as opposed to being fearful about the future? And what we do there is we try and show people the incredible advances happening in science and technology, and try and get them excited about the idea of technology as something that 
serves humanity as opposed to something that is going to come along and destroy us all or something that is going to be our downfall. And so we cover new technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain, virtual reality, renewable energies. We talk about gene editing, biotechnology, all of the new technologies that are coming along and making incredible changes happen in the world. And I think that was that's what drew me to what you guys were doing because you were yeah bringing this optimistic view and the vast majority of the stuff that you see out there about the future is fear mongering. So I know you do a lot of research because you, your newsletters are chock full of amazing information. So what are you seeing out there? Like okay, I'm, I'll. I'll, I'll put it in a different context. What I'm seeing is a lot of sort of, I'm going to call it Hollywood influence fear mongering. So I'd love to hear about what you're seeing and what are you noticing there? I think what's happened is that we are now living in a world where technology is no longer a sector on its own. It's now a layer of everything. Mm. Um, it, it's not just, you know, technology is the water that we're swimming in now. It's not just the way we work or the way we talk. It's, it's everything. Yeah. It's all around us. And I think for a lot of people, that's happened so quickly. That our if, heads are spinning. <laughs> our heads are spinning. Yeah. You know, we're, we're constantly connected. We have all these devices, technologies in everything we do. And that leaves a lot of us really fearful because the changes happen so quickly. We haven't really been able to catch up um, with what that means. And so mm. we're experiencing this sort of psychic collision between expectations and, and reality. Mm. And we're fearful because we sort of think, okay, technology's come along, that means that we're going to create robots that are going to destroy the puny humans, or we're going to invent a bioweapon that's going to destroy life on the planet, or we're going to scorch the earth and leave nothing left anymore. But, but remember, we felt the same way when we left our caves, when we split the atom. These things, whenever we invent new technologies or whenever we try new things as humanity, that is inevitably a fearful process. Hmm. And I think what we're starting to see here with these, this new batch of technologies is that same process playing out again. We are naturally fearful of things that are new because that is how we are designed. But I think if you can overcome that mindset and start saying, okay, well, what can these new technologies do? What opportunities can they bring? It leads you to a whole different way of actually engaging with them. And before we started, there was something you said to me about, um, well, basically looking at the, these messages through a gender lens. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, I think that comes down to a specific conversation about artificial intelligence. We're hearing a lot about artificial intelligence these days. It's uh, a big buzzword. Uh, it used to be big data. Now it's artificial intelligence. In two years' time, it'll be something else. Or in five minutes' time, it'll be something else. That was so <laughs> five minutes ago. It <laughs> changes quick. <clears throat> so to, to just give you a bit of context on artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence has been around for a while. It's the idea that we use machines to perform acts that look to us like an intelligent act. So Gary Kasparov in 1997 being beaten by a computer, that was artificial intelligence. So what was he beaten by a computer? Was it chess? <clears throat> no? In chess. In chess. Oh, well, cool. So the way that artificial <laughs> intelligence for the last 50 years effectively has worked is that you, you get machines that are really powerful and they, and they take these big data sets and then they produce a whole lot of rules and you try and make as many different rules for as many different situations as you can. And that way you're able to, for example, beat a human being at chess. The big breakthrough was that in 2012, a team at Google used an, a previously obscure technique called deep learning, which is based on a piece of software called artificial neural networks. And this is a very, very different way of actually doing artificial intelligence. Because what happens here is that the machine learns by processing information layers and then strengthening associations between those layers of information. So in the same way that, for example, a child learns to recognize a toy or its pet or its parent through repeated associations with that object, a machine learns to recognize objects or patterns through repeated association and saying, okay, that is a 
cat. That is a cat. That is a cat. And it takes all those different permutations and eventually learns what a cat is. So is that like when Google Maps learns that I take the shortcut rather than the, the route that it suggests? It's a bit different. Okay. That was something that was more rule-based. Okay. This is something that almost works the same way that our brains work. So they've taken software and they said, how do we make software work the same way that the human brain works? That happened in 2012, and that has changed everything. That's why we're seeing this explosion now. Because what it means is that machines can be pattern recognition. They can do pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And it's not just image recognition. That means that we can now do pattern recognition on speech and language. It means we can do pattern recognition on words. And it means we can do pattern recognition on different kinds of information. And so we've just seen this explosion in applications. In particular, I mean, for example, in particular in, in language translation, the Google team took this software and applied it to Google Translate, which is their online yeah. um, translation tool. Yeah. Now, in the last 10 years, Google's tr Google Translate is kind of, the quality of translation is kind of leveled off. And if you've used it, you remember you sort of use it, and it's some, it sort of works, but sometimes it's not quite, quite yeah, perfect. It doesn't really <laughs> pick up on the nuances. It doesn't pick up on the nuances. And that's because language is such a complicated thing that you can't create enough rules to cover every single use case. Right. Starting last year, they spent nine months switching Google Translate's algorithms over to a neural network. And when they turned that neural network on in September 2016, language translation improved by 85%. I remember reading that. Yeah. So overnight, it improved more in one night than it had improved in the entire 10 years before that. Mm. And if you now go into Google Translate and do a translation, it's almost flawless. Wow. Because now what's happening is it's learning by doing. So every time someone makes a translation, it's getting better and better mm. and better. And it's using that by recognizing patterns. So when they go into the black box to figure out how, how that works, they actually almost don't really know what's going on there. Mm, because Google Translate machines have created their own sort of meta language through which they translate all the other languages inside. Wow, fascinating. So I want to bring it back to what we were talking about before in terms of the fear-mongering and what, what observations you're making about <coughs> yeah. who, who's, whose voice is coming through here. So the, the conversation about artificial intelligence is now dominated by a, a pretty small number of people. You see stuff, for example, like Elon Musk saying he's really worried about artificial intelligence. Um, Bill Gates is really worried. He's worried what it's going to do to us. Stephen Hawking Artificial intelligence is the greatest threat humanity faces this century. There's a sort of common narrative that's coming out here about um, how artificial intelligence might come along and turn human beings into paperclips. If, for example, artificial intelligence is told to make paperclips, then it'll take human beings because we've got iron inside us and convert us all into paperclips. Right, okay. This is like a Hollywood-style scenario where yeah. the machines come along and they are megalomaniacal and homicidal and cold-calculating unfeeling overlords. Is that a bit of a projection, do you think? Well, isn't it interesting that all the people that are having that conversation happen to be of a single gender and also happen to be of a very common kind of background, which is upper-middle-class Western privileged background. Mm. And isn't it amazing that all those people of that gender happen to think that high forms of intelligence are, by definition, or, or will naturally tend to be homicidal, <laughs> megalomaniacal, um, and cold, unfeeling, and calculated. Mm. And yet there are 3.5 billion people on the planet who have a high form of intelligence who don't necessarily behave in that kind of way, and they are called women. And this is a thing that I'm, I'm finding really interesting as I listen to, you know, for example, the podcast of Exponential Wisdom with Pierre Diamandis talking about artificial intelligence. And I love that he's talking about it more in terms of amplifying human intelligence rather than it being about you know, externalizing and robots and, and all that kind of stuff. But what feels like is missing to me is that the fact that there are vast 
forms of intelligence that we're not appreciating, you know, emotional intelligence, intuitive mm. intelligence, somatic intelligence. Mm. And to me, that's the essence of being human and the things that are important for us to develop such that we can really distinguish ourselves, you know, step into the possibility of what humanity is capable yeah. of when we have the assistance of machines doing all the, the, the grunt work from a data processing perspective um, and enabling us to have conversations with people who speak a different language. Like, I, to me, there's there's a lot of exciting things, yeah. you know, and that are likely to occur as a result. But yeah, there is this, uh, I am a bit concerned about how those who are advancing these technologies may not be considering things like emotional intelligence. So artificial intelligence is is totally revolutionary. I mean, this is this is one of the most important technologies we have ever invented. I think what you're getting at here is that the conversation, it's such a big technology, it's applicable to so many human beings on the planet. Effectively, we've got two and a half billion people on the planet now with smartphones. That is a lot of people. Artificial intelligence will eventually become available to all of those people in the sense that you will have an, an intelligent assistant that's available to you all the time. Sort of like Jarvis from Iron Man. Um, it's like an intelligent assistant that lives in the cloud that can work things out for you. Well, and I'm also <coughs> anticipating that down the track, it's going to be, you know, nanotechnology. It's going to, like, we won't have to hold a phone. It's going to be in Yeah, us. eventually that stuff starts becoming implanted within human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can get onto that. That's the sort of, the sort of merger of machines and, mm-hmm. and humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think with artificial intelligence, I actually prefer talking about it as intelligent assistants. And to me, it sounds really great. People say that we're going to lose our humanity as a result of sort of starting to use these machines increasingly. And they already say that we've lost our humanity because of smartphones. But to me, the idea that I can have an intelligent assistant that can help me work things out, that can plot better routes for me or, or help me make better decisions is, is a great prospect. Um, I can A human being can only juggle seven discrete concepts in their head at, at any given time, mm. which is why you, when you're doing a lot of things at the same time, when you do the eighth thing, you, you tend to forget where you put your keys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to have a machine that could juggle 90 different concepts at once and then spit out a recommendation for me based on my own personal circumstances or, or what I ask that machine to do? In a fraction of the time that humans In a fraction can. of the time. Mm. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, there's a marine biologist named Amanda Hodgson. She works on the west coast of Australia. She's one of Australia's top marine biologists. And for the last three or four years, her and her team have been launching drones out over the Indian Ocean to take pictures of sea cars. They're trying to figure out how many sea cars are out there. That's great because they don't have to do helicopters anymore, so it's cheaper. But the problem is each drone takes 65,000 photographs on a flight. A human being then has to sit there and go through all 65,000 photographs and has an error rate of about 50%. Because sometimes you think it's a wave or it's a rock or you make a mistake. Since uh, September last year, her and her team have trained Google's TensorFlow, which is an artificial intelligence image recognition platform, open source, free, to process all those images for them. Wow. So it's it's tra- they've trained the machine how to recognize sea cars in the photographs. That now does it in a fraction of the time, and the error rate has dropped to 20%. So it's better, it's quicker, and that means that the human beings are now freed up to actually do the work that they really want to do rather than doing the drudge work of going through photographs. Ah, excellent. Cool. So I'm going to shift the conversation into leadership for a moment. I feel like there's so many things that we could talk about and, and many things that we could unpack further, and perhaps we will have the opportunity to do that down the track. But what are you seeing from a leadership perspective in terms of whether it's workforce readiness or just mindset around what's coming at us and how possibility of humans thriving into the future? 
from from the way that we're looking and certainly from working with a lot of organizations who understand they need to deal with technology and also are really interested in the future of work how, how does technology affect the way that we form teams the way that we get things done there's a really interesting shift that's going on in terms of decentralization in teams and in organizations people talk about innovation and they, and they say that innovation it, that's usually thought of as a product or a platform. But what they forget is that the way we organize ourselves can be innovative too. Okay, yeah. The big And the big revolution that's happening here, the companies that make the most impact are starting to take that on board, are starting to reorganize themselves in new ways. Because what they've realized is that we've moved from a world that is information poor but certain into a world that's information rich but uncertain. Ah, uh, yes. So is it things like, you know, holacracy and teal management that's sort of changing the, the way we organise ourselves? Yeah, so holacracy, um, and you might want to explain that, but holacracy I'll, is... I'll add a, a link in the show notes great. for people who want to find out. The, the idea here is that you, you flatten your organisations out and that people gain a lot more autonomy. I mean, that sounds like nice. that's a nice idea in theory, but the practicality of that is actually quite difficult. Well, and I think there's probably room for, like, in the, the work that I've done to look at things like holacracy and till management, I think they're, yeah, they're great ideas, but we need a transition point that is going to enable us to move more fluidly into that space rather than going, okay, we'll try that and then we'll fail. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Well, the problem with that is that you have a big organization. You still need to maintain operational ability. You mm-hmm. can't just try these new things and, and change everything whole scale. Yeah. Um, let me tell you a story um, from a place you might not have been expecting about one organization that did this, and they had serious operational concerns. And that organization is the U.S. military. So if you go back to Iraq in 2003, 2004, the U.S. special forces in Iraq were getting thumped. They were facing al-Qaeda, which was, they were sort of getting attacked by small teams. Um, it was unpredictable. They were like a Fortune 500 company that was facing a swarm of startups. And despite having better equipment, better technology, better information processing, everything, they just weren't able to compete because they were operating in an entirely different environment to what they were used to. This is something that um, Tom Marcus, who someone I interviewed earlier as well, talked about from his experience being in Iraq. But yeah, go ahead. Okay, great. Well, what happened here was that a guy called Stan McChrystal, um, General Stan McChrystal, was appointed head of the US Special Forces in Iraq in 2003. And he realized that what was going on was that the organization was no longer fit for purpose because they were trying to control everything in the center and he and he called it the dinosaur's tail he said that the what happens is that the organization grows and grows and grows like a dinosaur but the leader's brain or the ceo's brain sometimes still stays relatively small even if they're really good and eventually the dinosaur gets so big that as soon as it turns the tail kind of swings and knocks everything over because we're talking about so much information having to get processed so many different operational capacities uh, that it's impossible for the central organization to stay on top of everything in the way that they used to be able to. So what McChrystal did is he instituted a whole-scale reorganization of the way the Special Forces worked. He divided them all into small five- to seven-person teams, and then he gave each of those teams complete autonomy for 24 hours. He said, you don't need to phone headquarters to get permission to do anything anymore. But what we do is every morning we have a sort of military-grade Skype call with 7,000 personnel on it where everyone in the organization gets an operational update, gets told what today's goals are, gets told what other teams are doing, and then for the next 24 hours, you're given autonomy again. So trusting people to do what they think is best. You trust people to do what's But what you do is you give them guidance. You say, here are our priorities, here's a general guideline for what we're doing, but we trust you to do that in the way that you think is best. And what we will do as headquarters is give you all the equipment, all the support, all the air support, everything that you need, but you make the call. And what was brilliant about this was that the information was flowing both ways. 
So instead of it just being an organization like a sort of an octopus with tentacles that's everywhere and all the information goes to the central brain, the information actually gets processed by the tentacles as well. So, so the information is being processed across the entire organization. It doesn't all come and get processed centrally. Sounds like a bit of a neural net. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, these things are all very similar. It's no surprise mm. that um, the metaphors all tend to kind of converge to one place. So what are you seeing in terms of leadership, the way that they are dealing with it? Do you think that, that there's a, perhaps the organizations you're dealing with are, are ones that are forward-thinking and, and ready to face this stuff? Oh, no way. No? That's the exact okay. opposite. Tell me more. <laughs> a lot of organizations, things have changed so quickly that they've sort of been left behind. And so we are often approached by organizations. These are these are really highly competent, great organizations. They do a great job and, and they're filled with intelligent, smart and passionate people. But they're not quite sure how to move into this into this new world. And so they come to us to say, can you tell us what's on the frontiers of science and technology? And can you tell us what the disruptive trends are that are coming down the pipeline that we need to start getting prepared for? Mm. And given those disruptive trends, how do we then need to change our organization internally? What I hear and what you're saying is that they're at a point where they feel there's a risk if they don't do something. They feel vulnerable and they are taking the step to ask for help and, and being sort of instead of like, oh, we'll, we'll just brave through it. They're kind of going, wow, we're seeing the writing on the wall here. Yeah. And to me, that's what leadership is about, being yeah. able to, to be vulnerable, to be open about the fact that you do need to you know look at things differently and to have assistance in doing that. Yeah. And also, I suppose, calling in help from places that you, you wouldn't normally do it. So not just relying on the expertise within the organization organization but actually collaborating with partners um, talking about sort of cross-disciplinary work and really saying these problems cannot be solved by groupthink or or by people with similar backgrounds the uh, the number one organizational adaptation that any organization can do for example is increasing gender diversity um, say more about that that sounds great <laughs> so that so the, a lot of new research in the last maybe three or four years by McKinsey. Um, Credit Suisse has done a huge um, study as well. And what they showed is that for every increase of 10% on your leadership or executive board of female representation, your returns go up by 3%. Fantastic. So if you had a leadership board that had uh, 10 people on it and you increase the number of women on that board from two, two women to five women, on average, a company gains returns of 9 to 10%. I mean that is incredible. That that is that means it's a way better strategy than any kind of R and D or reshuffle or change in management. It means that the fixes here are actually really really simple. And the reason those fixes, the reason that increasing diversity helps, is that it allows you to make decisions for a much wider range of problems. Um, allows you to respond in a much more effective way because you've got diversity of thinking. And because these changes are so rapid, and because there's so many things happening so quickly. Uh, you can't do it via groupthink anymore. Well, and what about cultural diversity? Well, cultural diversity—that's the next—that's the next battle. So it's not just about saying we need people of different genders. We also need people of different national backgrounds. We need people of different race. We need people who think differently, different socioeconomic backgrounds. So diversity—I mean, gender is the obviously the um, the banner child, I suppose, for the diversity problem. But diversity is also diversity of thought, mm. and you can gain diversity of thought in a lot of different ways. Mm. So I'm going to, again, shift into perhaps a, a bit more personal questions as far as what leadership means to you. I think that a lot of leaders in today's world, which is changing so quickly, a lot of leaders understand that, that they need to do something. Um, and I think it's having the humility to say that I cannot do this alone. So, so that's one aspect of good leadership. The other aspect of good leadership is this idea of leading from behind of saying that my job as a leader is to gather a good team around me. The unit of delivery is the team. 
and then my job as a leader is to empower all those people within that team to 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 achieve the outcome but they're going to be the ones that actually lead the problem solving my job as a leader is to is to support them to help them to be there for guidance but i'm not the one who's sort of leading from this idea of leadership from the front where you you're holding the flag and striding forward into the brave new future with your team behind you i think that's a very outdated and old image mm. um and let me give you another metaphor for that one. In the 20th century, the way that organizations work, the way that we organize ourselves as a society um, looked a little bit like a pyramid. So you'd have this big pyramid, you have the leader at the top or leadership team or whoever that is, and then you've got all the people at the bottom. And your job as a person is to move your way up through the pyramid, you know, promotion, career progression. Mm-hmm. The problem with moving all the way up the pyramid is you have to step on people as you get all the way to the top. And when you get to the top... You then have to protect yourself fiercely against everyone underneath you because they're all trying to climb to the top as well. So that worked great in the 20th century um, where you had large-scale organizations and needed economies of scale. But the problem with pyramids is that they don't move either. They're squat objects that sit on the ground. In the 21st century, we're moving to something that looks a little bit more like a galaxy. And in a galaxy, the interesting thing there is that all the objects in the galaxy rotate around each other on the same plane. So they're all at the same level. Some of the objects in that galaxy are bigger than others. They have more gravitational pull, but every object is exerting gravitational influences in in every other object. So we're all in it together. And the beautiful thing about a galaxy is that even though it's all rotating on the same plane, if you look at it in space over time, it's actually moving forward. So the galaxy is moving in one direction. Yeah, okay. So we're all rotating in the same plane, but we're all actually moving on one direction. So leaders might be the big planets or the things that exert great gravitational pull, but they understand that we're all in this together and that they're not sitting on top driving the direction. Beautiful. Love it. I feel like you've touched on this, but I'm going to ask it to see if there's something, a different nuance that comes out of it. What does leadership mean to you now that is different than previously for you? I'm probably uh, not the greatest person to ask this question because uh, I tend to be one of those people that has a problem with authority. I think that's a perfect place to come from. (laughs) I'm one of those people as well. (laughs) And, and honestly, that's one of the impetuses for me in this is that I have seen so much poor leadership yeah. and very rare instances of great leadership that I really want to amplify the great leadership. And But it's the contrast. It's, it's my anarchist flag-waving background that has me in this position of, of wanting to, to make a change. So I, I think that's a, this is a perfect place to go from. So I have a problem with authority. So I have a real problem with people telling me what to do. I think you're in good company. And I have a real problem with people telling other people what to do as well. Mm, Okay. People, I think, especially in big organizations, get given a title and they then get given the permission by by the cultural identity of that organization to tell other people underneath them what to do. I think that is highly destructive um, and an incredibly poor cultural fit for the problems that we're now facing. The best examples of leadership that I've seen are when leaders create what, I'm going to sound uh, slightly hippy-dippy here, but when they create um, what's called a manifestation vortex. Oh, or, a, okay. or a possibility engine. Mm-hmm. The job of the leader there is to create a structure like a, um, a safe container um, with really sort of walls, great support. But within that container, people are allowed to do whatever they feel they want to do. So we've got an overall um, purpose of the, of the organization. Hopefully you are with that organization because you share that purpose of achieving that organization's aims. Mm-hmm. The jobs of the leaders are to say, here is a, a structure or, or a container. We've got great support, technical, um, emotional support. We've got great um, examples. We've got mentorship, everything you want in that container. But once you are inside the container, 
you do whatever you want to do. Trusting people to do what they think is best. Go for it. Yeah, great. And and inside that container, the unit of delivery is the team. Mm. The unit of delivery is the team. Small, two pizza teams. A team should be small enough that two pizzas should feed it. Oh, I love it. That's a great way <laughs> to look is, at it. This comes from Amazon. This is Amazon's big thing. Ah, okay, Amazon yes. structures its Amazon's the most innovative company in the world, as nominated by Fars Company, I think, last year. Amazon's philosophy is founded on two pizza teams. Great. I say we organize everything with these two pizza teams. Teams can form guilds and larger things, but the unit of delivery is the team. Mm. So that team operates within that container, and you trust that team to to do the right thing. Mm, wow, I love that. I'd love to perhaps talk about that more another time. Um, is there something that has inspired you to change your own leadership? I, I don't. I don't think I, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, whatever comes to mind. There are certain, there are people that I admire. There are very few leaders that that I admire. Um, the leaders that I tend to admire display the qualities that I've just talked about. I think that the leadership that that I'm really interested in is people who are leading by trying out new things. I think that we are in a, a unique time in human history. I'm a big fan of a woman named Joanna Macy. She, As am I. <laughs> right, um, she talks about this idea that we are in sort of overlapping realities. It's either the great turning or it's the great collapse. And one of those is she going to be She also talks true. about the great unraveling. Sorry, the great unraveling. That's her yep. words. Yeah, I call it the great collapse. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the great turning or the great unraveling. And we don't actually know which one of those things that we're in at the moment. Mm. She then talks about what we need to do. Is, is everyone needs to, to get in to make sure this is the great turning. We need the activists on the front line. We need the people who are um, working behind the scenes in, in legal, in um, organizing. What we also need is we also need people who are trying out new and better ways of doing things, Absolutely. inventing new technologies, um, inventing new approaches. And those people in that area are the people that I'm naturally drawn to. Mm. Um, I love inventors. I love hackers. So who are some of the, the people that you admire? Other than Joanna Macy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love... Okay, I'll give you two examples of cool inventions. One is an organization called Festo. One is an organization called Festo. They're a robotics company, and they um, are bio-inspired robots. Okay. So they take examples from nature, uh, octopuses, kangaroos, Oh, I've seen that, yeah. And then they create robots that are based on those those kinds of principles. So so biomimicry in a way. It's biomimicry, but Mm. with robotics. Nice. The stuff they do is amazing. Um, so another, another organization called eEnable. Um, they're using a combination of 3D printing and digital technologies to 3D print prosthetics for kids in um, who are disadvantaged, um, mm-hmm. which is incredible because it means for the cost of ten or fifteen dollars, you can now give kids prosthetics who never have previously had access to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very ins- I'm inspired by a lot of people working in the renewable technologies space. People who sort of said, okay, well, we're not going to solve the global climate crisis by appealing to politicians to get the right thing done. So we necessarily need to work on these new technologies that are going to bring the cost of clean energy down to the point that that all changes. And there are the banner heroes in that, people, you know, organizations like Tesla. But there's also hundreds of small little startups and inventors and people in garage labs that are inventing new stuff too. And I think um, this week, for example, I saw um, a crew out of Western Australia has invented um, clear solar glass. Wow. So this idea that you have a, a glass panel, a window, mm. that is its own generating mm. solar cell. Wow, fantastic. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing new technology. Absolutely. I'm also really interested in people who, you know, those are advanced technologies, but there are also people who are using 
technologies in kind of um, are not less mundane, but in a bit more of a basic way. Um, one of my favorite organizations is called We Farm. They're based in in Africa, and they've taken they've started from the idea that most farmers in Kenya and in in, in Africa have phones. Okay. Not all of them have smartphones, but they've all got mobile phones. Mm-hmm. They now have a crowdsourcing platform. 150,000 farmers are signed up to it. And any farmer can text a question into that crowdsourcing platform about their crops. And then the answer is crowdsourced by all the other farmers. Wow, like Yammer for Farmers. Like Yammer for Farmers. Wow, cool. Now, these are farmers that have never had access to that kind of information before. And they can say, there's a funny disease on my um, tomato plant. Does anyone know what it is? And they get the answer almost straight away. Mm, Fantastic. Um, 150,000 farmers. Uh, another great story also about crowdsourcing. There's a company out of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, they've got the world's first fully production-ready 3D-printed car. The parts for that car were 3D-printed. It's all done in 3D printing. What materials do they use to know? It's made out of plastic and composites. And is metal part of it? Oh, metal. Yeah, metal, yeah. metal 3D printing is very advanced now. Okay. Um, and the parts for that were crowdsourced by 150,000 car enthusiasts who then submitted designs for the parts, and then those parts were upvoted and downvoted oh, wow. depending on what the crowd thought. That's and it's an electric. So it's electric, 3D printed, crowdsourced, and when you're finished with the car's parts, you can take it back and get them recycled to make new parts. Oh, fantastic. This is one of the things that I'm, I'm super keen with in terms of 3D printing is being able to use recycled materials because that was one of my concerns when it first came out. What are you going to be... What is the material that we're going to be using? And so, a, lot, a lot of it's plastic. Great, but. great new story. Um, Adidas is planning on selling a million pairs of shoes this year made of 98% ocean plastic waste. Yeah, I heard about that. That's Recycled fantastic. Ocean plastic I love waste. it. And there are a bunch of other companies now that are saying, great, we can use plastic to make 3D printed shoes, and they're starting to follow suit as well. Mm. So they're designing shoes for women, designing shoes for workers. We're starting to see plastic seen as a resource for oh, doing about shoes. <laughs> we'll be mining the oceans in yeah. no time. I guess the point is here, mm. there are so many wonderful stories about how technology has been put to use mm. in service of humanity. Those stories don't get enough airtime because... Our narratives about technology tend to be fearful and negative. Mm-hmm. And if we can start looking at technology as something as a tool to allow us to get stuff done that makes the world fairer, life-sustaining, and better for most people on the planet, then that's a superpower that puts that focuses our energies in the right direction and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, what do you think people need to focus on to become more prepared for the future? Well, the first thing is, is to start engaging with this material. Um, people have the greatest information resource humanity has ever known at their fingertips. It's called the internet. All of this information is out there. It's not necessarily always in the mainstream press. Um, who tend to have a, a, a commercial logic that's predicated on fear and inaccurate perceptions of risk. So that distorts our view of the world. But the internet's a big place. And so um, there's a lot of places to get this material from. And, and if they're interested, a good place to start is our newsletter. Absolutely. I was going to say that's the, that would be my suggestion as well. It's a great yeah. composite of all the great things that yeah. are happening. We send that out once a fortnight, and it's packed full of stories of science and technology and how people are using it to make the world a better place. Mm, fantastic. So my last question for you is, and I feel like we could have many other conversations that perhaps we will. So I ask all of my guests, when you are aware of someone who is having some, some misgivings about putting some thing out into the world it might be a creative project it might be writing a book it might be starting a business or perhaps an invention um what advice would you have the the advice or or the sort of principle that i've been operating a lot on recently is um it's not what you know it's about what you do regularly that matters a lot of us know a lot of different things a lot of us have a lot of great ideas um but it's what you do regularly it's it's sitting down every week it's sitting down every day it's committing to a course of action and then doing that regularly 
in some cases that takes years. Uh, sometimes it even takes decades. Um, but there is a huge, I won't say freedom, but there is... There's a freedom in discipline. It's, there is a freedom in discipline. There is a freedom... Which is so antithetical to how I perceived yes. discipline a few years ago. Well, there's a freedom to commit it to a course of action and then stay in the course, you know, come come sort of rain or shine. And that really, I think, is, is where great products or, or great ideas really get built. Committing to that course of action over a number of years and saying, I'm, I'm going to do this. And it's bloody hard. Mm. Um, but I think that saying it's not enough for me to just know cool things or to have good ideas. It's, it's actually about sitting down and, and getting them out there. And I, and I think there's a, that's, that's very powerful if you can do it. Mm, beautiful. Mm. Thank you for um, taking the time to be with us today and I uh, look forward to our next conversation, whenever that may be. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a really great conversation. Gus says our brain is Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. Yep, that's one of the things that stood out for me. We've evolved to focus on the scary and negative, but we don't have to stay that way. This is not biological determinism. Becoming aware of this stuff and learning about the neuroscience is a bit of a start. For me, it's been a lot of years of retraining myself and just how I use my brain and and where I allow my focus to go. And it used to be very oriented toward what was wrong with the world. And then I had a few shifts from a personal development perspective. And then it was primarily the Pachamama Alliance's Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream Symposium that really got me to see what's possible and that we can create a different future. It got to a point for a while where I really swung to the other end of the spectrum and I wouldn't tolerate negativity. Thankfully, now I'm a bit more balanced and probably easier to be around. And I think it's important to face the reality of the difficult stuff, the things that scare us, but also to be open and really open ourselves to the awesomeness of the things going on in the world right about now. I loved that Gus talked about leadership in terms of being able to ask for help, to know our own limitations, and to getting support in doing things like cross-discipline collaboration for solving complex problems. These are the traits of leadership that I think will help us create a different future. Another thing I really enjoyed was that metaphor about leadership. He talked about the pyramid, the hierarchical last century style leadership, and then the current century style, more like an emerging leadership that is a bit more like a galaxy that moves together, is dynamic, where we influence each other in a more flat, at least by contrast, kind of manner. And what a nugget of research-backed gold, hearing that if you increase the number of women on your board by 10%, your returns increase by an average of 3%. This is the most impactful thing that you can do to prepare for the future and ride the wave of disruption. Not restructure, not changing things on the surface and keeping things status quo at the core. Diversity of thinking new approaches, different ways of looking at the same old problems. That's the best thing that our organizations can do. And this isn't about ideology or being progressive. This is well established in the research. And yeah, it might take a while for significant uptake, but we can start by asking people who are not like us what they think. So what are you taking to heart from this conversation? What's the story that you're telling about the future? What's the future that you'd like to create? How is your organization, community, country preparing for the future? Sure, we don't know what's going to happen. 
But there are some things that we can do, skills that we can develop. It's our humanity that will influence the kind of future we create. What impact will developing empathy have on the future? Or our ability to collaborate, make collective decisions? These are the things I think we can do and cultivate in ourselves and our teams and communities that will bring about a different kind of future than the one that just sort of happens to us. And what about the stuff about leadership and authority? Who among us struggles with authority? Don't like being told what to do. Don't like seeing others being told what to do. The theme coming through really strongly around this is to trust people to do what they think is best and to stop trying to be the smartest person in the room. And the key here, and you've heard me talk about this many times if you're a regular listener, is trust. Do we trust the people around us? What can we do to give them opportunities to demonstrate they're trustworthy? And when they fail, what can we do to help them learn and stop using it as a reinforcement of our beliefs about how people are or aren't? Times are changing. The way we relate to authority is changing. Look, I think it has changed. It's increasingly rare that people with authority don't need to prove themselves. We no longer blindly follow. And this is disruptive to the dominant paradigm of leadership. Finally, his tall poppy advice. Gus says it doesn't matter so much what you know, but what you do regularly that really makes a difference. What do you do regularly? What do you practice often or do with the information that you have, the knowledge of your understanding? How can you share this in a way that inspires others? In wrapping up, I want to thank you for being on this journey with me. I've loved having people contact me after listening, or people that I know but not well mention that they've listened. I'll tell you a little bit of a story. So I'm using my new mic. I finally got a microphone that uh, hopefully will sound a bit different. And the guy that I purchased it from, when we were corresponding about the purchase, he said, oh yeah, and great podcast, by the way. And I was like, what? You listen to my podcast? So yeah, that, that was kind of cool. It, I love that kind of stuff. And I've been getting really good feedback. And I want to, yeah, I also want to hear what's not working for you, what you do differently. A few things that I'm thinking about are a listener survey to get an idea of what kind of direction that you'd like me to take this in. Do you like the future stuff, the productivity stuff, the mentoring stuff? So that's one thing, a listener survey to look out for in the next few months or possibly the next month. I'm also thinking about taking a month off when I move house. I also may change the frequency of these podcasts after that. There's some practical realities around time and self-funding this podcast that I'm pushing up against and weighing up all my options. So stay tuned for more on that. And of course, I'd really love your thoughts. Leave a review. You know, at this point, there's still only one review and we've just hit over 3,000 total downloads. So I know there's a few of you out there. And hey, welcome to Denmark. You're now in the list of countries with tall poppy listeners. And interestingly, Japan has now has a bigger listenership than Canada, which is where I have half of my community after living there for more than half my life. So my lovely Japanese listeners, send me your tall poppies. Who would you like to hear on the podcast? Email me. You can email an introduction or nominate someone via um, LinkedIn or Facebook. On Twitter, I'm Tathra ST. So that's Tathra, T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T, as in the abbreviation for street. And you can search for me on Facebook or LinkedIn. So my name is spelled T-A-T-H-R-A, surname street, S-T-R-E-E-T. 
Next episode, we have Paul Fairhead talking about his experience at Abundance 360 with Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil. And he tells us a bit about what it's like to lead creative industries in these crazy times we're living in. He's got lots of awesome things to say and some really great advice. So I look forward to seeing you then. See you on the flip side. <laughs>